What's up, guys? Welcome back to Table 40. Matt and Leslie here. And today, uh, as we're in season two of, of the podcast, today we're, we're lucky enough to have uh, Coach Rick Barnes, who's the head basketball coach at Tennessee. Um, we met Coach Barnes uh, when he was the head basketball coach at Texas when we were living in Austin and um, got a chance to, to, to get to know him and his family and uh, become close friends with them and, and uh, just followed him from afar, obviously. Uh, we're in Oklahoma and he's in Tennessee. I thought, Coach, uh, when I looked at the brackets, when the brackets came out, I got a little nervous. Uh, my, my, my second uh, favorite coach is Mike Boynton. And when I looked at the brackets, I thought, wow, we're going to have a second round matchup uh, with Tennessee and Oklahoma State. And so, um, unfortunately, it didn't happen because, you know, you, it just it didn't happen. Oregon yeah. State got, got, got hot and, uh, and took us both out. But uh, I was a little nervous, Coach, that we were going to have going to have to figure out who I was going to root for. You know, I'd watched uh, Mike, and he, I thought he did a terrific job with his team this year. And and for some reason, throughout the year, you keep thinking, you know, some way somehow we're going to match up with somebody from the Big Twelve. And uh, but like you said, uh, we got our our best post player got hurt in the semifinals of the SEC tournament and uh, didn't get to play in the uh, against well the quarterfinals then he didn't get to play in the semifinals and then we knew he was going to be out for the first two uh, rounds of the NCAA and when we drew uh, Oregon State honestly I knew we were in some serious trouble because of their post player and we didn't have a, anyone that we thought could match up against him but but Mike's done a terrific job I tell you what when you go back to where when you have a player that everybody knows is the number one pick in the NBA draft and you know, we had that at that uh, Texas with Kevin Durant, it's not easy, but uh, watching how Mike brought him along, Cade Cunningham is really, really impressive. All right, so I have a funny story for you. Whenever we lived in Austin, Matt would come home from working out and he said, uh, man, we got to go eat at whatever that pancake place was. He was like, Coach Barnes says it's great. And then like, then something else happened. Like he said, we've got to go try this granola at this other place. Coach Barnes says it's great, best he ever had. And every time he would explain something, he would come home with this new treasure of how great something was. And I thought to myself, you know, I feel like I really need to meet Coach Barnes because he sounds like the most positive guy in the land. And yeah. so I love that about you. And Matt just really, really thought that was awesome every time he would come home from a workout. And, and you were right. Most of those things were, came true. <laughs> Most yeah. of those things were great. <laughs> Yeah. You, you know, it's really interesting when Matt came over there, Leslie, you know, we loved it because, you know, he was a beast the way he trained and everything. And it was great for our guys to see a professional train like a professional. And uh, it really helped us. But uh, Matt, you remember you gave me a picture where you were walking the stand usual and mm -hmm. uh, you'd gotten hit in that day. Remember, mm -hmm. you had a big old welt on, the, yeah. on your arm. Remember? Yeah. But it was great when you came over. But uh yeah, I, I used to come up places in in Austin. I used to know those good eating places. Yeah, you were right every time. It was awesome. <laughs> so let's go back. So to talk to me about your so when you transitioned from playing in college at Lenore Ryan and into coaching, did you always know you wanted to be a coach? You know, as far as as a kid, like you want to be a basketball player. Tell us a little bit about a young Rick Barnes. Well, you you know uh, what really what really happened was. I always played sports. I always was involved. And my sister got killed in a car accident when I was, uh, I, I actually fell the first grade because of my attention deficit, which back then it was called a bad attitude. <laughs> and uh, a lot of little paddlings back in those 
first, second, third grades, really all the way through till ninth grade, to be honest. But uh, when she got killed, I kind of went off the deep end because uh, I had I grew up with you know I had uh, there were five of us, three myself, three brothers, and, and my sister, and she kind of took care of my my uh, little brother and I. And uh, she is a person that it, I mean it devastated my world. It really did, and and I decided. You know, my mom and dad had an eighth grade education. My grandparents couldn't read or write. And we were just told, you just got to go to high school. You got to get a job in high school and uh, get a job after you graduate from high school. And then uh, I had some coaches, uh, Alan Beam, uh, Bill Johnson, um, Alice Watts, Joe Ryan, for some reason, are like guardian angels. They came in, my, Clinton Sigmund, my principal, they came in and for whatever reason, they just really helped me at a time looking back that I really needed it. And from that point on, like most kids, you know, you dream of wanting to be a big league ball player like you were, but I knew that wasn't going to happen. And so I wanted to be a coach and a teacher because of the impact those teachers and coaches had on me and went to college. And from that point, I, I knew uh, all through high school, I knew I wanted, I used to go uh, scouting with my high school coach and my college coach. And so I, I knew I wanted to do it. And then obviously once I got through with college, uh, Volunteered at Davidson uh, for a year while I actually worked in a lumber yard and, and worked for Equifax Services That's because I had to make a little bit of money. And, and then from there, uh, I've been blessed in the fact that uh, I worked for some great coaches and uh, uh, people that have taught me a lot along the way. But I did know at a very early age that I wanted to be – I actually wanted to be a high school coach is what I wanted to be. But when I was coming out, there was no jobs for PE teachers. And I know that I, if I couldn't teach PE – I could never teach anything but PE, and uh, those jobs weren't available. And uh, so I was fortunate, uh, a, a guy invited us to the ACC tournament. And when I walked out, I was married my senior year in college. I said to my wife, Candy, I said, boy, I love to coach college basketball. And she said, uh, let's do it. And we sent out letters and actually they're laying on my desk now in an office that I never go into all the rejection letters that I got back then. And it's amazing. I actually have been a head coach at some of those places that didn't have a spot back then. And God's been good. And I do look back on it. God has just put me in the right places at the right time with so many guardian angels that he's brought into my life. That's incredible. That's incredible. So when you and Candy were, were married and, and you had that conversation with her, um, was she quite ready for what this journey was going to be like? Had, did she have a background in, in sports at all? Well, she, yeah, well, she, she, her, her dad was a big sports guy. He, uh, Lenore Ryan, uh, her, her maiden name was Ryan, and it was her dad's uh, great great uncle founded Lenore Ryan, and he was an avid supporter there. He went to NC State, and so they were, so Candy had been around sports her whole life. And, you know, without her, I had never really been out of North Carolina other than we would get to go to the beach maybe every couple of years. And, so, and she, she was uh, a very uh, extremely well-liked person. Uh, she was actually first runner-up in the Miss Hickory High pageant when I was a sophomore. I remember sitting there thinking, but that's like my dream girl right there. You know, <laughs> she, was two, she was two years ahead of me because she went, she, went, she went to school early. I went, I failed a grade. So, and you know, back then, you know, seniors in high school aren't dating sophomores, you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> But when she went to college and at, uh, and then we, I worked for her dad. I literally, I went to dinner with her mom and dad. And when she came home one summer, we worked together in her dad's hosiery mill. And she was coming off a relationship with a, a guy. I was coming off a relationship with a girl that I dated for a long time. And 
and we just started going out as friends and then we ended up uh, falling in love and when we went to that and my grades Leslie went from being a not a very good student to my senior year we got married to where I actually made the days less you know because of her but she she gave me the confidence to I think to know that we could get outside and of North Carolina because I didn't know anything about it. I had not traveled. She she was she had, she was much more cultural than I was, and and uh, so she never looked back. And and because of her, she gave me confidence that we could do it, and and, uh, and we did. And and every move that we, and we made a lot of moves. I mean, you know, we owned, uh, we made three or four moves within three years. And but um, she uh, without her, I I don't think I could have done it because I don't think I would have had the confidence at that point in time in my life to do it. Yeah, it is interesting. We've talked a lot over the last, I guess, season one and then, you know, with pro athlete couples and coaches wives and, and you just become a team. And I think that it is really neat to hear that, that that was a strength that she had early in your marriage and, and was able to encourage you and, and see the man that you were becoming and the coach that you were becoming. That's such a blessing. And I think um, it's real important for husbands and wives to kind of lock arms like that and move through a career together versus, um, you know, not like rebelling against mm -hmm. what God has for, for your man. So um, that's really neat. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about your faith journey. So tell us about your, you know, I, I read up on some of the things about sort of, um, I don't know, just give us a background in, in, in your faith in Jesus and, and when that started and maybe um, a little bit about that. Well, you know, when you grow up, uh, like I said, my, my mother and dad divorced when I was three or four, I didn't really know my dad and didn't really have a relationship with him, even though my brothers had more of it than I did because I was the only one in my family that really got involved in sports. And so, you know, back then when he would come to town to see everyone, I was normally playing ball or doing something. And so I didn't really get to know him and, and which is honestly a regret. I really, I really do because I know he's a really good man, a good Christian man. And but growing up uh, without a dad and my grandfather, who I called daddy and my grandmother, I called mom and I called my mother, mother. And, uh, but we were always in church. You know, we, we, uh, my mother is 92 years old now. She's the last living charter member of the church that we all grew up going to in Hickory. And so we were in church on Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and uh, something going on around the church. We were there. So I grew up knowing, um, honestly, hellfire and damnation that's what back then that's what it was was like and and uh, then I also joined the church early and probably more reason than not was to be a member of the softball team and <laughs> but when I was in the uh, eighth grade uh, I love I, re I remember back in 1962-63 there was a big revival at Lenore College which we called it College Field and uh, Leighton Ford uh, Billy Graham's I think brother-in-law, maybe, relation to him. And my dad, my granddaddy and I sit out in the parking lot while they were doing that. And so growing up in North Carolina, there's two names that you knew at an early age from where I was. It was Billy Graham and Richard Petty, you know, two, two <laughs> big names in that state. And uh, so, and every time Billy Graham would come on TV, I don't care what I was doing, I went home to watch Billy Graham. And one night I really did get in front, down on my knees in front of the TV and pray again in an earnest way and ask that Jesus come into my life. And at that point in time, I really kind of thought I wanted to be a pastor. You know, I really, I thought about it, but, uh, but then, you know, I had basketball and all that. I wanted to 
be a big league ball player. And then as I fast forward and, you know, Candy's mother, uh, she was, she played the church of Oregon for 52 years at the same church, a Lutheran church. And so when Candy and I started dating and I always, and I always, even in college, I, I continued to go to church every Sunday, did all that. And then when Candy and I got married, we more spent more time with her at her church. And then once we got going in this business, you know what, honestly, I, I lost my way. You know, I got caught up and wanted to be a big time college coach and I got on the fast track and, uh, I wanted to be a young head coach, which looking back at 31 or 32, I was a young, at one time, one of the youngest coaches. And, but, uh, you know what, I got too worldly, uh, thought about fame, fortune, money. And, and, uh, there was always a guilt complex there that I knew I had strayed away from. And then, uh, to, to be honest with you, one day I come in and, uh, I'm, uh, my daughter said, and my son said, dad, we need to talk to you. And, uh, they were, we were in Austin. We, I sat down and they just pretty much, they told me the truth. And they actually said, you know, dad, if you died today, you wouldn't go to heaven. And uh, said, you know, we don't like the way you treat mom. You know, we don't like the way you're with us. You're short, you're this and that and everything. And, and it really, it upset me. And I, and I left and got in the car. And as I'm driving up the street, I'm crying. And I, because I knew they had told me the truth, you know, I knew they had told me the truth and, uh, and I was anything but, you know, walking the way a Christian would walk. And on the outside, I think most people would say that, you know, good guy, this and that, because I've always tried to be positive, Leslie, with people, you know, and try to make people feel good. But inside, honestly, uh, I was doing what I'd always told my players not to do. I was living a lie. You know, everybody saw me as something that I really wasn't. And by the grace of God and, and, uh, I remember they they were all going to the Austin Stone, and I'd gotten to a point where I didn't like that kind of music, you know, because I grew up in a Baptist church where I, you know, every Sunday, you know, the old rugged cross, you know, uh, uh, Amazing Grace, those traditional things, and then going to the Austin Stone, it was like a rock concert. And uh, but I started going, and what I think was really, again, to show the grace of God, the very first time I went. I sat on the very back row up against the wall in the bleachers. And the day that I left Texas uh, after being fired there, knowing I was going to come to Tennessee, we were on the front row. And, uh, you know, we, we had become great friends. You know, Matt Carter and Ronnie Smith and all those guys that started coming over to train with us. But what, what, I, what I think, and I tell people this all the time, is that, you know, you've got to have people that are willing to tell you the truth. And I like to think, I look back on my life that uh, – uh, and Candy has been an incredible mom. She raised our children. And uh, the fact that, you know, they love the Lord is the most important thing. And, and I'm just thankful and, and that that God, you know, he, he, he won't let go of you. And I, and I don't think there's any question. He had me when I was young, but I let the world take me in, down a road and roads that I shouldn't have gone. But I, I believe that once he gets a hold of it, he won't let you go. And, uh, and I think that he still... Have, he has great plans to help me become more and more like him every day. And, but if it wasn't for people in my life, uh, in my kids, I mean, think about it. They, they had a hard conversation with me and I wish that happened more often. I think parents need a hard conversation sometimes and it sometimes from their kids because we all know how much we love and cherish our kids, but uh, it's truly by the grace of God. It really is. How has that, how has that affected your coaching? Was that something that immediately, um, you know, you, you 
like you said, it, some perspective came back. Did that change your coaching style or the way you interacted with your players immediately? Something that they noticed? It did. And I'm going to tell you what it did. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Again, when I say I got caught up in coaching, uh, you know, I'd, I'd never said a curse word until uh, halfway through my first year as a head coach. And I had an assistant coach tell me, coach, if you don't start speaking their language, which is, and you've been in the locker room you know what it'd be like you're not going to get to them and uh and I, and I did an about face and again that's where I, I was saying I got worldly and started thinking I had to be something like other coaches which I don't think all coaches are like that but uh and I was around a lot of coaches that not just coaches that I've worked with but coaches I competed against that you know that would talk a certain way and the the language wasn't appropriate and I had a player by the name of Damian James, who was a wonderful player, wonderful person from Nacogdoches, Texas. And he came to me and he was really struggling. And um, we were getting ready to actually play Oklahoma. And, and I had him on my mind. And uh, at this point in time, I brought him in before the game, about five minutes before the, uh, we had to really get serious with our game stuff. And I said to him, I said, Damo, how can I help you? I said, I want you to tell me how I can really help you. And he looked at me in the most sincere way and said, Coach, I owe you an apology because I haven't been the player that I should be. I haven't lived up to the billing height. And I'm sorry because I feel like I've really, truly let you down. And I said, Damien, you have not let me down. I said, this is part of what we go through. I said, but you still didn't answer my question. Why or how can I help you? And he looked at me and and I could tell he, he was hesitant. And I said, no, I, I really, I'm asking you right now to be brutally honest and transparent with me. He said, coach, you know, I've never had a white man talk to me the way you talk to me. He said, I've never had a, and he grew up around mostly women. And he said, I love you to death. But he said, it really hurts me when, when I feel you're cursing at me. And I said to him, I said, well, you know what, Damien, I'm never going to do it again. And since that day, I've never said a curse word. You know, and it just goes to show you, it wasn't me, but it was who I thought. And sometimes I like to think it's, the, the, you know, the world, you know, thinking it had to be something I wasn't. And and you don't have to be like that. That's that's one thing. You don't have to be like that through leadership. And again, I was living from a worldly standard, which was wrong. And uh, and that in itself, Damien, and, and I talked to him today. I mean, he, I love him to death. He's, he's like a son to me. And I'm like, you changed my life. Because, again, he told me, he said, Coach, it hurts me. And I don't ever want to hurt a player. And I look back on my time as a coach. And since that, Matt, I have called players up in the past that I coached back at Providence, other places that I haven't been around for 20, 25 years and apologized to them. And told them, I, I just want you to know I was wrong. And, and, and those bonds, you know, they've all made me feel good by saying, Coach, you taught us more than just basketball, but I said, no, that's not what I'm saying. You didn't deserve to be cursed or, or, or that. That's, you know, and, and I'm thankful that, again, those guys, but I did, I went back and apologized to a number of players that I felt like I owed an apology to and uh, rekindled relationships that way. And because, you know, we're dealing with young people and, and they, they, need to, they need to know the truth too. They need to hear it too, but it can't be in a way that's disrespectful it can't be in a way, first of all, that's not honoring God. And especially if we're going to talk about being a Christian, that we've got to walk it. We've got to uh, walk it more than talk it, really. But I think I'd like to think we can do both of them. 
but um, that that has changed me in the terms of, and I've always been, I think, a player. I, I've been hard, man. I, I would tell you, I'm, I'm a hard on players, but I think leadership comes from having hard confrontation, uh, conversations. I think you've got to be willing to uh, know that you got to sometimes, uh, people say, you know, leaders don't have to be disliked. I don't think any of us ever want to be disliked, but I think the worst thing you can do is not be honest with people. And uh, so being a leader, I think you have to have those sometimes those hard conversations, but you also have to let them know that those conversations are coming from a, a point of love and caring because the worst thing I think that a player or anybody that you come in contact with look back and say, if things get worse, they say to you, why didn't you help me? Why didn't you tell me the truth? Or why, you know, why did you not just speak truth to me? And so I, I want people to look back on their time with us and say it truly was one of the greatest times of their life. And that, um, they know they've always got a home and know that uh, we're going to be authentic and be real. That's awesome. So what ways do you practically build, build trust to where you can have those hard conversations to where they know that, that your intentions are truly to get them where you want them to, not necessarily where you want them to go, but the potential that you see inside them, like, like getting that out. And so in what ways do you build trust with your players? Let's see, I, th I think the most important thing is to teach players what a, a relationship is. Player, coach, friend, a friend, whatever it is, that it has to be two ways. I mean, you know, as well as I do, that there's some people that you just naturally gravitate to. And that's on your team too. And so I think it's important that you talk about if we're going to have a relationship, it's got to go both ways. And that means that you're going to maybe like, for instance, first time I met Matt, I could I, I could feel being with him was a, was a good thing, you know, and I enjoyed it. Some guys, you know, a little bit different personalities where I think that you've got to be willing to work at those relationships, you know, where somebody that's a, a little bit different, maybe somebody that's maybe not as confident, maybe somebody like I know, I know what it was like in the when I was should have been in the ninth grade, in the eighth grade, hurting inside. And I, it was a hurt that I and I, and I lashed out in ways that I shouldn't have. And I had some other people that set me down, but every one of them had very honest conversation with me. I remember Bill Johnson saying to me one day, there's been a lot of people that have lost loved ones, but you got to stop using it as a crutch. And, 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 and nobody ever said, and I looked at him like, what are you talking about? And he said, I know what it's like, cause it happened to me. And he said, do you ever get over it? I don't think you do, but you have to learn to live with it. And does it get easier? I don't know if it ever gets easier. You know, uh, I know parents that have lost loved ones and I don't think it gets easier. You just learn to, to live with it. But uh, so I think that the key is talking about a relationship and, and knowing that everybody's not not the same and how do you connect with somebody. And and then once they realize that you truly you really, truly do. Care. I do think that people will open up, but I also think that prayer has a lot to do with it. I think that we've got to pray and ask God to help us. Uh, just like when I knew we were getting ready to have this conversation, I prayed that hey, that some way, somehow through this conversation, he will be glorified. And, and, I, and, I, and I believe that with, with every day we get up, we pray through our schedule and pray that God might put someone in our path that we can talk about him because it's the greatest thing we can talk to people about. But uh, also uh, when I, get ready to meet with a player uh, where in the past, maybe God was far away. Now I, I want him to be the, I want him to be in me and I want to be a mirror of, of him as much as I can. And, 
And I, and I do think that, that Jesus was a tough guy. You know, I mean, you can't endure what he endured not being tough, but uh, relationships is what this is all about. When it's all said and done, you know, winning and losing, we all, we know we want to do that. But the relationship that I have with Damian and James now has nothing to do with, yeah, we played coach basketball together, you know, share that, but it's much deeper than that now. That's, that's really good. What would you say? I was just curious. And, and so in the last 20 years, have you, do you feel like the kids have changed? Is it, a, do you have to adjust your coaching style with all the social media and like the, I don't know, just, is, is there a, is there something, is there strategies that you've had to change over even the last 10 years with all the more, I don't know, I guess just the Twitter and the Instagram and everybody, you know, this and just, I don't know. Has it changed anything they're, that you've done? They're the stars of their own show. Yeah. Has that changed your <laughs> strategies at all? Well, it, it has changed. It has changed in the fact that kids are exposed to so much more at an early age because of social media and all that. So we'd be naive not to think that it's changed. But with that said, I don't think I've coached a guy to ever that, I mean, I, had, I have the same dream they had. You know, I grew up wanting to be a big league ball player and all this. And, you know, you, you lived it. You got to be there. And what and, I, and I'll say this, too, with parents. Uh, I remember back when I was in the ninth grade, there were some parents that uh, every day would come to practice and some guys played that play. You know, you know, players always know who should be playing. Mm. We know that. Right. And but these guys played and a lot of times we didn't understand why, but I think there was some parental pressure being applied, you know, mm-hmm. and back then, and I don't think it's any different today, you know, that, that some of the parents are involved because we all want to see our kids do well. We, I, I get all that, but I, I still go back. I think it's about speaking truth. I think you've got to be honest. I, I think so many people today, they want, they want to be athletes, high level athletes, be pros, they, they, they want the trimmings more than they want the, the love of the game, you know, the passion to play the game. I mean, they want it. And, and you think about it. One of my assistants told me this the other day that in the history of the NBA, only 4,000 players have ever touched an NBA court for one game. Only 4,000 and 3,000 for multiple games in the history of the game, which it makes sense when you think about it, you know. But uh, – the ones that, that I've coached, and I've said this many times, we've coached, I think we've had 30-some guys that have played in the NBA, and they all had a uh, – those guys had a passion for the game, the ones that really had a career, what we would call a career. Mm-hmm. And we probably coached twice that many that could have, should have, but it gets down to it, why didn't they do it? They truly didn't have a love of the game mm-hmm. the way they – because if you love the game – and, and you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about because you you see it too. You witness it now. But are players different today? In some regards, and some not. You know, uh, the, where I would say young people are different, they get exposed to so much more, and they have they're they're going to have to fight more than when I was growing up in the '60s and you know early '70s. There wasn't that much. You know, I mean, you certainly didn't have a cell phone you were looking at. You know, you had to. I mean, I tell my guys all the time. I said, some of you, some of you guys couldn't guard your mother. They were locked in a phone booth and they're like, what's a phone booth? You know, <laughs> you know, they don't know, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but that, that's, I think is the biggest difference is, is there's just so much that they're exposed to at such an early age and the distractions out there. Like this year, because of what we went through with the coronavirus, and we didn't feel like we, and we had a good group of guys, but we were young for the most part. And all they did was 
they told me they spent more time than ever playing video games, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm amazed at how many of them don't watch TV as much as they play games. Yeah. And, uh, which I don't think that's good. I, I don't, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, you were outside. I mean, you, you were made to go outside. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, and we, we just, our life didn't revolve around even watching TV, but the key is today, uh, how do you get people to be focused on what it is they really want to do with the love of the game and not for the, not for the, the trimmings that come with it? No doubt. Yeah, that's good. That's the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> that's a challenge in coaching yeah. for sure. Yeah. All right, let's talk about your kids a little bit. Um, I think it's amazing that they had the courage to have such a hard conversation with you at a young age, but let's talk a little bit about what they're doing and where they are and, and what the Lord's doing in their lives. Well, one, my, my wife deserves all the credit there because you know, she's always like, if you walked in my house right now, I promise you, there's not one thing in my house that you would think I'm a coach. Not one thing. There's not a, there's not a trophy. There's not a plaque. There's not a TV article. There's, there's nothing. Because the one thing she did at a very early age, she did not let my kids get caught up in what I do because it was, it was a job I had. And so always, she always made sure our kids were involved with church. And uh, I can remember, uh, you know, Nick coming out of his room one night, he had read Billy Graham's autobiography. And he said, dad, I feel like God's calling me into the ministry. And, and uh or calling me to be a christian and and uh, little did we know at that time that he ended up being a missionary and he's been overseas now for over going on 10 years and then carly got going to the austin stone and uh you know when it was just getting going and it just took austin by storm from that standpoint and uh but you know what uh i think we always taught her let our kids be who they are. We, we never tried to force anything on them as much as I would love to see them do sports. And they did. We were, they were always involved in something. But it's really neat today. Now they go from uh, as much, you know, you, get, you have parents, right? Your parents right now with young kids. And you know how they go from kids to teenagers and all that. Well, I'm going to tell you the best thing you got to look forward to is when they get older and they start having kids because <laughs> there's nothing like being grandparents, you know, but our kids have been, it was, it was everything to us. I mean, you know, everything that I did, I remember when I got my first job and thought I was making some money, a buddy of mine called me and said, well, how do you want to organize your, your money here? I said, well, if I die, I want my family to have enough insurance to take care of them, take care of them. And I want my children to have a chance to go to any university, college they can get to go to. I want those two things in place. And so we've, we've always put a priority on that, but we, we've always been very honest with them too. And, uh, and it's neat. And you, and you asked me about, uh, I think the reason they, were, they could be honest with me is I don't think that was anything that we did. I think that was God. I think at that point in time, they truly meant what they said. That, uh, they said, Dad, Mom, Nick, and I, we're going to heaven. But if you died today, you wouldn't do it. And, uh, and it, that was the truth because uh, did I know who Jesus Christ was and what he did? I did, but I was not living it, you know, and, and, uh, and just because I said that I accepted him, I just I wasn't living it. And so I think the fact that that was, you know, I think they had prayed about it. I think they had spent time in prayer and the fact that they knew they needed to have that hard conversation with me, uh, it, they were led by God to do that. Yeah. And your daughter Carly's in, in Austin and she's adopted 
couple kids and has, has a couple kids and that's incredible. Mm-hmm. What a neat journey in active obedience. I think that that's, that's really remarkable. Well, you, you know, Carly, when she met our son-in-law, Josh Lake, they, they, they knew they wanted to adopt. They did. They, it wasn't a matter that was on their hearts. Uh, I think he, I think he had, I want to say that Josh had read a book. I want to say it might've been David Brainerd. I, I can't remember who it was, but, but he had a, Josh always had a, uh, a, a, a really a, a need to feel like that he was called to adopt and Carly felt the same way. And, but they thought they would have children of their own first and then adopt. But uh, again, through the Austin Stone, a group came over from uh, Uganda and they were going around, you know, trying to raise money and for their, for the church they were building over there. And uh, it was known that they wanted to adopt and they went back and within weeks, they said, there's a little baby here that's, 13 months old that uh, needs to have. And so they went over and adopted Caleb and, and they'd only been married a little bit over a year. And then while over there, they visited uh, an orphanage called Cherish that was uh, tied in with the Austin Stone too. And then uh, felt called to go. They, they went back thinking they were gonna live there for five years because the laws to adopt can change weekly daily basically and they felt now they had to go back and, and they went to uh, get citizenship and then be able to adopt that way but then the laws changed again so they lived over there for a year and they were the first ones to adopt Avery she was six years old and she was in the cherished orphanage and they had not ever allowed anybody from their orphanage to be adopted but they finally knew they had to to free up space for other kids and so they adopted her and then came home and uh, then they, she did get pregnant and have uh, Emma. And then she had Isla where Isla was a micro preemie that came 16 weeks early. And it's really amazing. You want to see how God works in that situation. I mean, that was, that was a really, really hard time in their lives. And I mean, Josh was at the hospital every night for, you know, 16 weeks, you know, when Carly got sent home, he never didn't go up there every night. And, uh, but now, if you see her, I mean, you would never know. I mean, so uh, those NICU nurses are something to behold, I'm telling you. But uh, and even to the point that where Carly has said that she thinks someday she might want to go back and, and do that because of the way she was handled. But, uh, you know, Leslie, the whole thing, I think, with our family is where when you look back on all of our good times and trials, God has been the centerpiece. And you look back on the roughest stage of it was probably with me, to be quite honest with you. And it's when I had drifted. And so it's like I said earlier, I, I think that when God gets a hold of you, he might let you get, he might let you stray a little bit and, and need your kids. I mean, it's not easy when your kids tell you that they don't like the way you're living, you know, and the way you're treating people and you're not who everybody thinks you are, but I'm thankful. I truly am thankful. And to the point that I'm not afraid to talk about it because I, I believe that some other people probably need to hear it too, you know? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. All right. Last one for me. We ask everybody. So outside of the family, if you had one meal with, oh, well, let's, let's do former players. And this may be hard. So I might be choosing your favorite kids. But if you had to pick four or five of your favorite ex-players for a big dinner, and what would you have? Well, before I answer that question, here's what I got to tell you. I thought you were going to ask me this. If I only had a chance to have a meal with, you know, a meal with somebody, who would I pick? And when I was at Providence, I actually got a call from 
the Providence Journal and they said, I'm going to ask you a question and you've got one second to answer it. You can't think about it. <laughs> and he said, if you could have a meal with any two people, who would it be? And without batting an eye, I said, Billy Graham and Richard Petty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they're off the table. They're already there. They can already be there. With that said, knowing where I am today, obviously I'd say Jesus Christ and Paul. I would say that would be two guys i like to sit down with. But, you know, when I look back on, on uh, players that I think taught me, uh, no question, T.J. Ford. I mean, T.J. had an unbelievable feel. You know, we were playing a game one time, and I jumped on Brian Boddicker. I think you know Brian, I think. And I told him, I said, I'm done playing you. I'm not going to play you anymore. And uh, we were actually playing Oklahoma for uh, – it's been the year that we were both had number one seeds, and it was senior night up there. And I walked away from the team – and because I was upset with Brian and TJ said, what are you thinking? I said, well, I think we're getting our tails kicked. He said, well, do you want to win? I said, yeah, I want to win. He said, well, you got to put Brian back in the game. I said, I'm not putting him back in the game. You just heard me tell him. He said, well, coach, you don't want to win then. And so I, he walked back on the court. I walked down to the end of the bench and said, Brian, I'm going to give you one more chance. <laughs> and I put him in the game. And this is a true story. In 45 seconds, TJ met him when he came into the game. In 45 seconds, he hit three straight threes. And we ended up winning that game. And walking off the court, TJ patted me on the butt and he said, you're a heck of a coach. Yeah. <laughs> like, but and I could tell other times he had said to me, take the game over. Kevin Durant is another one uh, that I learned. Uh, I mean, he's truly one of the all-time great players. And, you know, he said something to me. He said, I know I've been blessed with great God-given ability and I want to coach. It's going to coach me really hard. And I remember one night he took a shot that literally came over the backboard as he was kind of falling out of bounds, instead of trying to save it back, he shot it over the corner backboard. Almost went in. <laughs> I took him out of the game, and I said to him, I said, Kevin, why would you take that shot? And he looked at me dead serious, and he said, Coach, I thought I could make it. <laughs> and later on, he did make some of those, yeah. right? But I, but I would mention, you know, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge was a guy, too, that had a uh, – I, 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 know, I know where LaMarcus was and how he, he had a wonderful mom but they were on really hard times when I first met him and where he is and, and, and the way he's gone about things and, you know, had a great impact too, just from a player coach relationship, a guy that I, I truly, uh, I mean, he, he was terrific, but uh, watching him grow the way he did. And I, and the story about Damian James, that's always one, you know, that would, ha would happen. And, uh, but, you know, you're right when you talk about uh, sitting down with the guys. I could go on and on about a lot of different players. Roy Alivey mm -hmm. was a player that, uh, you know, that we weren't sure he was good enough and ended up being the all-time winningest player there as a, a, a guy. But, but if we – and if you're asking if we'd sit down, what would we eat? Um, with those guys being safe, it probably had to be a steak, you know, right. with those guys. Because uh, I remember with TJ – uh, <laughs> They don't eat many different things. Uh, they don't venture and, out. The bad part about it is they'd all get it well done, which is not right. Now, you know, I always try to get those guys. When I'd go into restaurants with them, they'd order steaks. And I used to say to them, if you're going to go to Ruth Chris or Flemmy's and get a well done steak, we might as well go to, yeah. you know, somewhere else because it Iron. doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 It doesn't matter. But I would always order my steaks medium rare and I would, I would beg them to do it and try it. And I'll tell you this, everyone that tried it ended up doing it. Yeah. Saying, no oh, doubt. you know, but that's that because that's. But I remember TJ coming in for a visit, and he we were at uh, PF Chang's, and he said, "Coach, they have those things, uh, 
And I said, what things? And he, and he started throwing out all kinds of, I said, TJ, what are you talking about? He said, you know, those things on a stick. And he meant a, a kebab. Right? <laughs> I said, no, they don't, uh, not here. They don't have kebabs, you know? And so uh, I said, but we can get, we can get everything that goes on a kebab. Yeah, you know, but yeah. Be on I can find a stick and stuff all this <laughs> yeah. on there if, if you'd like to eat it off but, the stick. You know, the neat part is when you're with those guys when they're young and watch the men they've grown into. You know, it's really been neat. And like I said, I just talked about some guys, and there's a bunch more I could talk about in my life that uh, that guys that, you know, they bring a smile. And, and you think about it now, Matt, I've got guys I've coached that are now 55 years old. You know, and uh, a long time. and it's neat watching them and grow. And, and, and what's really neat is to still have a relationship with them. That's awesome. I love that. It's so good. Well, we appreciate you coming on. It's been great to catch up. Yeah, it has been. Thank you for listening to Table 40 with Matt and Leslie Holiday, part of the Sports Spectrum Podcast Network. For more stories on sports intersecting with faith, visit sportsspectrum.com.